Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. And in this corner, we've got the number one seed for all of black women in history. <laughs> Zora Neale All right, yeah, that's my intro bit. I'm just going to cut that together so it kind of sounds interesting and fun. And uh, now we're doing the episode because I can't do the intro music while we're over the internet. I mean, I always like to bop along like I can actually hear it, but that's all right. Oh, we can do that. No, hold on. Hold on. We're going to start over. All right. Now I'm going to cut in the intro bit that I just did before. And I am going to unequivocally disavow everything that was just said up until this point. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, Tyler, how's it going? Hi, Hannah. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I have a a cup of tea on this rainy Northwestern day. Yeah, it's Uh, rainy down here, too. It was like (sighs) I had to turn on my AC yesterday, and now it might snow tonight. Jeez. I, I don't yeah. think we're going to get, I hope we don't get snow, but yeah. I like recording when it's kind of like moody weather outside. It really puts me in a bookish mood. Mm, yeah. I can see the trees waving around in the back there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hopefully they won't like take out the power or anything. Now I just, I have to say like, normally you don't wear makeup when we do this, like, or at least you don't wear a, a lot of makeup. I don't know how much makeup you actually wear. Cause I don't, I don't know literally makeup at all. Um, <laughs> I've said that to my wife, like, oh, you're not wearing makeup today. She's like, Tyler, I'm wearing makeup. So uh, I obviously don't know. But today you're wearing more makeup. Are we supposed to be filming this so that people can see it? Was was that the idea? Uh, no, I put the makeup oh. on for work because I do a lot of Zoom meetings for work. And sometimes oh. I like to not look like a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> So it was one of those days today when I made an effort. Um, Thank you for for noticing. It's really unfair that men don't have to wear makeup because you don't experience what it's like when you like, like I I drive a lot because I go back to visit Oregon um, and I never put on makeup for the drive because I'm like, I'm going to spend five hours in the car. This is lame. But then you stop (laughs) to go to the bathroom at like a rest area or some McDonald's and you walk into the fluorescent shitty lighting, see yourself in the mirror. And I'm like, who is that meth addict staring back at me right now? Because I like (laughs) I look so bad. Uh, yeah, no, we can definitely start comparing who has it worse, men or women. It'll probably be women. But I mean, that is going to be on par with today's episode since, you know, we're we're talking about someone who was like all about women's rights, especially at a time when it was very important. Yes. And, you know, it'll it's just going to come up. We're, we're going to have to talk about yeah. how much worse it is for women than for men. This episode, um, the research for it was actually very surprising for me um, because the author we're going to be talking about today was around in the early 1900s. Um, and it actually, a, a lot of what surprised me was how not bad it was for, for women and in particularly, yeah. uh, or in particular, uh, the black woman who are, we are going to be talking about today. So she had yeah. some very um, interesting ideas and a lot of success at a time that I think a lot of people would not have thought that she could have success. Um, So the author we are talking about, of course, is Miss Zora Neale Hurston, uh, who I knew of just from high school English classes. We read her um, probably, well, one of her more famous novels, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, And that was pretty much the only exposure I had to her. So coming back to to research her life for this episode was really fascinating for me because I just remembered really liking that book. It was a a forced read in high school. So it's always nice when you actually enjoy one of those books. Yeah. 
I, you know, for me, it was definitely Orcarina of Time that I, I got into it and playing through that a couple of times. So, you know, like the Legend of Zora was Orcarina of Time, <laughs> Legend of Zora, Majora's Mask, Legend of Zora, Breath of the Wild. Those are definitely where I was introduced to this. Wait, somebody uh, please make that game. <laughs> I think Legend it would actually be legitimately cool uh, because of some of the things that we are going to talk about later on in this episode. I feel like she had a life that could actually lend itself to some video, to video games. Game? Yeah, I bet. It'd be awesome. Legend uh, of Zora, just, you know, you Haiti voodoo. <laughs> Yeah, you go around Haiti, you go talk to zombies and stuff. Yeah. Great. See, we're talking about zombies later. We're going to talk sure. about zombies, which who would have thought in this episode about a a writer in the nineteen hundreds? No, I had no idea. The first the first part of it was I was on I was on the internet, I'm looking around at stuff, right? And one of them was um, Zora Hurston's thoughts on zombies, and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh what? <laughs> this is great. But then like it was really boring her explanation for zombies and I was like, "Oh, well that's not as fun." You can't tell the listeners that her explanation is going to be boring at the beginning. This is supposed to be a tease to make them keep listening. The experience of the zombies is still going to be there. It's it's that interview and the way she was talking about it wasn't. Gotcha. As okay. Exciting. As I thought it was going to be when I thought she was going to be talking about Night of the Living Dead or some George Romero type movie. No. Which those hadn't even come out yet, had they? When did Night of the Living no, Dead think, come out? I think the 50s is when 50s or 60s was when Night of the Living Dead came out. Oh, yeah. So they were way after that. Um, but anyway, before we get into it, just because I always forget to say at the beginning of the episode, the biography I read, which was fantastic, uh, is called Wrapped in Rainbows by Valerie Boyd. Uh, it's a, a big boy book. Holy uh, cow. That's so much. I know. <laughs> but and you nice... got so many tabs. I took People out half of see. them. People can finally see. If they're watching the video, they can finally see how much work you actually put into this show. Oh, I thank like, you. Without me, there like you still have a podcast. You just don't have the annoying fat white guy making jokes the whole time. Without but, you, there's no podcast. It's just a fat white guy making jokes the whole time and nobody cares. But the jokes are what makes it, you know, interesting and spicy. Otherwise it's just me reading ten pages <laughs> of notes. And spicy. I've never been described as one who adds spice to anything. Oh my god. Okay, well for listeners who uh don't think Tyler is spicy. I will refer you to the uh, Mary Shelley episode and his hot take on Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the the uh, Twilight episode was spicy. Oh, that was okay. way spicier, but the Frankenstein yeah. one was actually legitimate, I felt like. You know what? I'm going to go deeper into Zora Neale Hurst's um, work, and I'm going to find some spice in there. I, there's got to be some jambalaya spice, right? Yeah, there, right? there can't not be. <laughs> like. Yeah. So, with that out of the way, shall we get into it? Let's do it. So, Zora Neale Hurston was born on January 7th, 1891 to John Hurston and Lucy Potts. So, her family backstory, uh, John, he was a very ambitious man. He was the son of former slaves. He was born on the wrong side of the creek, as they called it, in Natasulga, Alabama. Lucy was also the daughter of slaves, but her parents became landowners after emancipation, and they lived on the right side of the creek. So, this was kind of like a star-crossed lover situation mm, and her yeah. parents actually disowned her and refused <sighs> to attend the wedding because she married john whoa yeah um all because of a creek all because of a creek what are like it, it seems so silly in, in these days it sounds like you know the wrong side of the tracks or yeah like do we have that equivalent uh, in canby where we're from which side is the wrong side? Is the wrong side the side with Thriftway and the and the fairgrounds, or is the wrong side the side with the Fred Meyer, the Safeway, and the high school? That's so, because Thriftway is like the nice grocery store, yeah. But the nice like seven hundred thousand dollar house neighborhoods are on the other side of the tracks. So. Yeah, where all the farms used to be, and now now I don't think there's a wrong side of the track. I think the wrong side of the tracks for Canby is just Milano. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Poor Malino. So John kind of like always had this chip on his shoulder and this insecurity and need to prove himself. And he spent a lot of time traveling, uh, often away for weeks or months at a time, exploring, trying to find like a place to belong. So he was actually gone when Zora was born. And the story of her birth is that uh, her mom was like all alone in the, the house. It was like hog slaughtering season or something so nobody was around and some white guy who was walking by heard the baby wailing and rushed into the house he actually cut the umbilical cord and helped lucy until a midwife arrived so and yet in this story he's been reduced to white guy white neighbor (laughs) why does it matter whether he's white or not he's a neighbor he's He's the guy that saves her. He, yeah, but it's 1891, so it, oh, yeah, I guess it, it does uh, defy expectations. A, a white guy would care about a woman. In the <laughs> in South. That, yeah, yeah. Um, so Zora was the fifth child in her family and the second girl. Her sister Sarah, who was about a year older, was her father's favorite because he'd been like waiting for a girl child. And then he got like his little princess and all that. Uh, but then Zora came along and he was like, I don't need another girl and this one's really annoying so they just like never got along um and well her her dad and her or the sister and her her dad and her she and her sister got along fine as far as i can tell loves the sister yeah even though the sister was always the one who um got got away with whatever even if all the other kids were innocent and the the sister did something bad like their dad was never gonna spank her so sometimes they could all get away with it if they played their cards right that's how you that's how you use those siblings is you get them to do the shit that you want like oh we're hungry go get some candy from the cabinet let's send the littlest one or whoever's the baby to go do it because if he gets caught then you know nobody's gonna spank Cameron (laughs) but they'd spank Tyler (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Cameron was Sarah in uh, this scenario. Yes. 100%. <laughs> so while Zora was making her appearance in the world, uh, her dad was out contemplating how he would make his mark on the world because, of course, he he had all these grand plans for his life. So he was out traveling and discovered Eatonville, Florida, which was a newly formed all-black town. Uh, after he had been there for about a year, so like for the first year of Zora's life, he wasn't there. Uh, he finally sent money and had Lucy bring the kids to live there in a small cabin. When you say discovered, is he like trekking through the Florida Everglades and he just comes <laughs> upon this this city? I imagine he was like, you know, taking trains or something, but maybe there was a little bit of trekking, alligator wrangling. Yeah, some El Dorado situation. Yeah. Trailing the blaze. He just like... What? Trailing the blaze? Blazing the trail? Blazing the trail. You know, he... he comes through some palm trees and just sees this shining city where there yeah. are no white people. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew that the stories were true. I could always <laughs> believe in them. He's like, I'm finally home. <laughs> so he sends for the family to come join him. Um, and yeah, that's where Zora spends all of her formative years, kind of. Um So like I said, she and her dad didn't get along. Um, Part of the problem was that he always seemed to think that Zora had too big of dreams and he would even accuse her of acting white. Oh, God. Uh, she she talked back a lot, and then John would predict dire futures for her because of it. He said, like, white folks wouldn't tolerate it, and she'd, quote, be hung before she was grown. Uh, she said, or he said that Lucy, the mom, would regret not beating that attitude out of her when Good she Lord. had the chance. Uh, but Lucy really loved Zora and didn't want to dampen her daughter's spirit. Uh, John wasn't physically abusive that Zora remembered, but he did threaten to kill Lucy on two occasions if she ever tried to leave him. Uh, The irony there was that John had been cheating on Lucy pretty much their entire marriage. He was well, of course, he's a man. He can do whatever he wants. He can't. Yeah, Anna, it's fine. (laughs) As we know from this show, it's okay for men to do literally whatever they want. And if you bring up that you're cheating on your spouse, then he's he's allowed to get mad at you for ruining the thing that you guys all were okay with. Absolutely. And that is exactly how he saw it. And I think how uh, I most... feel like this guy's moving to the top of the list he's... of 
between Lewis and Lovecraft. Shitty husbands. Lewis Lovecraft's douchebags. Yeah. Well, at least he's not the author we're talking about. He was a reverend, though, which is like, come on. Of course he was. <laughs> come on. He was sanctified by God, so he can put it in anyone he wants. Oh, my God. Gross. But aside from her terrible father. Oh, uh, she- I got another one. I got another one. Because when he when he tells a woman that he's a reverend, he comes clean. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, we have to cut that out. That's no. disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. What he's doing is gross. It's disgusting. Abuse of power. This is why our demographic is like very limited. <laughs> <laughs> Every Christian was like, "Well, I was gonna give it a try, but no, I'm good." So aside from John, uh, she had a pretty okay childhood. She always wanted to wander somewhere new, uh, which scared her mom, especially when she would, you know, go into the woods for hours at a time. Uh, Lucy believed an enemy of hers had sprinkled travel dust around the doorstep the day Zora was born. Um, is that a thing? Travel dust? Is that I guess. Like a- or is that a made-up thing for that family? Because that's super cool. It might have been like it. part of the folklore of Eatonville. Because, mm. I mean, folklore and stories uh, were a huge deal um, in the South yeah. uh, and really influenced Zora. So it could have been from there or maybe just something Lucy made up. You know what I'm not a fan of That now that we're doing videos? Sorry to go super off the rails. But I get to normally eat during the show. Um, and now, now that I'm a video, I don't get to do that. So I apologize, but I'm going to do that. I like how you said you don't get to do it and then proceeded to do it. Well, if I did it, if I just did it, then it would just, <laughs> it, I would have, I wouldn't explain it. But if I explain it, then I get to do it. <laughs> like the reverend. Like the reverend. Okay. Just eat your, your keto bar or whatever that is. I have no idea what this is. <laughs> You just found food and... It's like super dry and gross. Oh my God. But I'm so hungry. (laughs) One of the uh, really important things about growing up in Eatonville um, and the influence that it had on Zora was that it was an all black town because she grew up kind of without these ideas about segregation or like black and white relations in the South. She just had like uh, a view of of black excellence, quote unquote, um, because she could look to town hall and even her father to see examples of men who were creating the laws of the city. Um, She had pleasant encounters with store owners. She, you know, didn't have to go to separate restaurants or any of that stuff. Um, And she also saw, you know, the the downside of that, um, like drama, fights between neighbors, infidelity, that kind of stuff. And she quickly decided, like, very early on in her life that she didn't believe in, quote unquote, race achievement. And she always said that everything was the work of individuals. So one of the things that characterized Zora was that she saw herself, yes, as a black woman, but primarily as an individual. And she saw other people that way, too. It is an interesting take. And I think it's something that, like, even I... Into my like twenties, I didn't really think about until I was more exposed to um, black authors and um, black leaders and people who they they talk about constantly talk about like, look, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm not trying to represent my entire race, mm-hmm. and it's unfair for me to be that in your eyes. Like, if I'm a black author, I'm just an author. I'm not trying to be the black author that you get to base an entire race of people on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I think it's interesting that take, and I think that's exactly what she's trying to get at, is she, she is an individual. She doesn't want to represent an entire race of people through her work. lifestyle exactly and that definitely comes up like in her career because she's part of the group that like you said doesn't want to be responsible for representing the entire race and there's another group of of black artists and creators who are like reviewing her work and other people's work and you know critiquing it from the perspective of this doesn't represent black people well or like this doesn't do enough to advocate for xyz position um so yeah so it's a very interesting divide um at the time so 
uh, in September of 1904, when she was uh, 14 years old or 13 years old, uh, Lucy call- was very, very sick. Uh, she called Zora to her bedside and instructed her not to let people follow any of the traditional folk superstitions when she died, because they had all these rituals like covering the mirrors, uh, removing the pillow from under a person's head as they were dying, etc., uh, etc. Et I'm not really sure what the pillow has to do with it. Yeah, except, that's like, a weird one. Like, we're going to make you flatter like you will be in the coffin. I don't know. Um, So Zora promised her mother this. um, But later that evening, when her father realized that Lucy was dying, all these people came in and started doing the rituals. They turned the bed to face the east which was one of the rituals. They started to take the pillow away. Uh, Zora tried to stop them, but her father pulled her away and restrained her. Um, And so Lucy's death and then Zora's own powerlessness to carry out her mom's final wishes uh, really scarred and traumatized her for for a lot of years after this. Um, John not surprisingly, was not very good at being a single father, especially since he didn't really like Zora that much. So he enrolled Zora at Florida Baptist Academy, where Sarah was already at school, and he shipped her off to Jacksonville. And this is where the video game starts. Yes. (laughs) She gets off the midnight train and and (laughs) walks out into Jacksonville. And uh, she remembers the day she arrived as, quote, the day I became colored, uh, because this was her first time in a town that wasn't all black. uh, And she encountered segregated streetcars, rude store owners, that kind of stuff. Uh, Jeez, that must. I mean, I just I can't even imagine. That would be so weird. That idea of just being thrust into a world that was probably always just at the edge of of your understanding. It was always like almost like the boogeyman, like it's out there, but you don't have to worry about it because you're safe, you're here, it's all good. And then suddenly you're in that world and it just comes crashing down. Yeah, it's like the kind of stuff she'd always heard about from adults and she was now seeing for the first time. Um she was socially awkward at school, apparently, but academically skilled. Um, And at least she had her older sister there to hang out with. But just a few months after Zora arrived, Sarah said she was too homesick and went home. And of course, John let her because she was the favorite. Of course. Uh, Shortly after Sarah left, Sarah wrote to Zora to say that John had remarried less than five months after Lucy died. And his new wife, Maddie, was 20, which was just six years older than Zora and younger than her oldest brother. Is he pulling a Frank Herbert? (laughs) No, because Frank Herbert never actually cheated on his wife. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's just an awful person. He's just a terrible person. Um, Sarah and all the other kids hated this woman. And soon Sarah married just to escape the house. Uh, John stopped paying Zora's tuition. Ah, hold on. Hold on. That's so sad. That's so sad. That idea that you're just going to get married just so you can get out of the house. And she was only like 16 or so. Oh, my gosh. It's so sad. Uh, Don't don't make your household so bad that someone is willing to go into basically endeavor indentured servanthood in order to escape you. It's it's not that hard. It's not that hard to not do. It's not, but you know this is this is John we're talking about, Tyler. So. Right, John the the good old <laughs> minister. So he also stopped paying uh, Zora's tuition, like the piece of crap he is, uh, mm-hmm. and she had to like do cleaning work and work in the kitchens at the school because you know her tuition wasn't getting paid. Um, and then at the end of the school year, all the other kids got picked up, but no one came for Zora. She was just waiting there. And eventually John what? wrote to the school that they could adopt her. He didn't what? want her to come back. This is the worst. <laughs> this is the worst. And the school was like, yeah, this bro, like, we don't do that. <laughs> this is like Ebenezer Scrooge. This He's- is what happened to one of the most terrible like people that in fiction the kid gets left behind at school oh my god this is awful <laughs> yeah so the school they they weren't going to 
you know, just adopt this girl. So a school administrator gave her cash to get home and was like, tell your dad to send me a dollar fifty or whatever it was for the boat ride. <sighs> so, I wish I could go back in time to punch this guy in the face. He really deserves it. But, you know, we must soldier on. I guess. Back to Eatonville, where Zora was fighting constantly with her stepmother. So John threw her out and she hopped from house to house in the town. But apparently she wasn't the easiest person to have around. uh, So she never stayed any place long. And at 15 years old now, she was also expected to have a job and contribute to household expenses. Uh, For context, in the early 1900s, about 40 percent of black girls over age 10 had a job uh, and compared to 16 percent of white girls, which still kind of surprising. But I'm not sure if that's like 10 through 18 or like what age frame that is but like almost four times as many black girls had jobs and zora did not really uh because when she did manage to get house cleaning jobs which were pretty common uh, she was more interested in reading the books on shelves than in dusting said shelves so she usually didn't make it long she's a classic bell right you know disney princess too busy to, to educating herself in order to, to do the chores that are expected of her. Exactly. Society expects from her. So her uh, late teens and early <laughs> 20s are like <clears throat> a little bit light on details. Uh, Zora referred to them sometimes as her, quote, five haunted years, alluding to some like mysterious, maybe sad stuff. Not that her early years were not also sad. Yeah, I mean, she only got <laughs> left at school and was like, told to be adopted but this is so bad that she won't even talk she, about it yeah she's very mysterious about the whole thing in her autobiography um Weird. but we do know that at some point she moved back toward jacksonville where her two oldest brothers lived she also worked as a maid for one particularly interesting couple at one point uh the husband was apparently he he was like hitting on her very aggressively and he even tried to convince her to run away with him to Canada. Mm-hmm. She told the wife, who was like distraught about all of this, but not very helpful. And as the husband's advances got more persistent, Zora actually moved out of the house she was renting. And she later heard that the husband went and tried to search the house to see if the landlady was lying that she'd moved. So this what? was like uh, some next level stalker shit. Yeah, that guy's obsessed. I, was this a white guy? Yeah. And eventually he ended up leaving town, ditching his wife with a different black woman. Oh, so, so he's got a fetish. That's yeah, cool. Super, That's super creepy. <laughs> Zora never went back to that house to get her final paycheck. She just like hightailed it out of there. She also went through a lot of other maid jobs, uh, then at one point moved back to her dad's house at age 20. But she and Maddie soon got into a verbal squabble that, according to Zora, ended up with Maddie calling her a, quote, sassy, imprudent heifer. Heifer is a female cow. Yes, I'm aware. Well, not all of us grew up in in farmland, so for the city listeners. Yeah, uh, for all you city folk, (laughs) uh, heifer's a female cow. And Maddie threw a bottle at her head as Zora remembered, uh, quote, she never should have missed because then Zora attacked her, pounding Maddie's face, uh, despite the other woman scratching back at her like Zora was a lot tougher than her. A neighbor tried to intervene and Zora threw a hatchet toward the woman's head, (gasps) missing, thank goodness. John, meanwhile, was just like crying in the doorway, begging Zora to stop. God, what a little bitch. (laughs) And eventually he pulled her away, probably saving Maddie's life and Zora's future, because if she would have killed her. Uh, this yeah. this biography could be a lot shorter. Yeah, well, and if you ever go look at pictures of Zora, she's not a small lady. No, she's like she's not tall, but she was like big, like yeah, mus- and not muscular. Like, yeah, not not a rot- rotund woman. She is a muscular woman, um, and you can see that she she doesn't necessarily tower, but she like she is very distinctly large and. Yes. And so the idea that she is just going to town on this, I don't know why I assume she's a petite little nobody. Like, she probably messed that chick up. Yeah, I think she she was not looking so pretty after that fight. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then, of course, Daddy John, Papa John. <laughs> That's just like so pathetic sounding. He's yeah, just like he's crying. Like, in the oh, corner. please stop hitting my wife. Stop it, Sora. Oh, please stop it. I don't know why he's jerking. That doesn't make any sense at all. So after this incident, uh, she disappeared from Eatonville and the public record for a while. So we don't really know where she went immediately after that. She did spend some time working as a maid for her brother who had moved to Memphis to set up a doctor's office. Uh, her brother had promised to send her back to school, which was like her primary goal at this point. Um, because she desperately wanted to finish her education, but he didn't deliver on this promise. And she soon got sick of taking care of his house and his kids as one will. Um, then at age 24, she got a pretty cool job as a lady's maid, which sounds super <laughs> weird, but I think it's just like a attendant or whatever for the lead singer of a theater company. Um, Zora had always looked very young, though, so her new boss, whom she ever only ever refers to as Miss M, thought that she was a teenager, and Zora never corrected her. So this is the beginning <laughs> of a long trend of Zora kind of fibbing about her age. Yeah, uh, I, I, did, I did see some stuff on that where she, like, was constantly not correcting people. <laughs> and sometimes outright lying. Yeah. Um, but this theater job was a crucial time in her development. She got to travel all over the East Coast and she lived with a diverse group of, in this case, white people who were Irish, Jewish, English. And this confirmed again what she'd always suspected, that white people were very similar to black people and that we're all just human. Um, and Miss M also paid for her to take a manicuring class, which made Zora indispensable to the cast and gave a skill that she'd use in the future when she needed work. But after I'm sorry, where did she move to? She they were going all over the East Coast. Okay. They I think they went as far north as Connecticut. Um, and they also did shows in like Virginia and stuff. But after 18 months at this job, Miss M quit the biz to get married. Uh, she gave Zora some extra cash and told her to go back to school, which she promptly did. Uh, in 1917, she moved to Baltimore, where all black children between 6 and 20 years of age qualified for free public school. Zora, at this time, was 26, so well over the age limit. But mm -hmm. she told Baltimore school officials that she had been born mm -hmm. in 1901, shaving <gasps> 10 years off her life. And she could get away with it? Apparently, she looked that young. Her classmates Damn. didn't seem to suspect anything. Um, she and her girlfriends actually prided themselves on dating college men who, in actuality, were younger than Zora. But everybody <laughs> thought she was like a mature high schooler. It's um, kind of gross for them, but yeah, that's cool. But is it more gross of her who's lying about being 26? No, it's definitely grosser that there's men who are trying to date high schoolers. It was the 1900s. Men. Whatever. You're right. I'm I'm some woke 21st century guy just putting my 2023 lens on back then. It's gross. It's okay. gross. Well, this next bit of news will make you happy, Tyler, because in 1918, her father, John, moved to Memphis, apparently without Maddie and without being listed as married. So who knows what happened after Zora beat the shit out of his wife. Uh, but he was soon hit by a train and flung out of his car. Yes. He died at age 57. Yes. I've never celebrated someone's death so much in my life. I'm okay with this. And I'm okay with how it happened. That is so that sounds violent. awful. Sounds terrible. Can you imagine his last moments turning and seeing a train coming towards him? And he thinks, oh, shit. I should have come more often. Ew. And then, bam. I really hoped you were going to say something wholesome. Like, I should have been nicer to my kids. No. He's Not obviously a terrible wife. person. He probably so, looked at the train and went, oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, I'm terrible. And then he's dead. And then everybody clapped. We're, we're going to hell, but so did John. I'm, John did. I'm, I'm good. Zora did not attend her father's funeral. Shocking. Uh, she was too busy plotting how to get into Howard University, which was like it. 
and it still is a very prestigious university but at the time it was like columbia for black students like this was the top of the top um she had to take more prep classes to qualify so she enrolled at howard academy uh in the winter of 1918 taking classes in history latin english and geography and she got her high school diploma in may of 1919 uh, she started at Howard University that fall. She got kind of average grades. Her lowest was a D in Greek, which like, why is homegirl taking so many crazy language classes? Like, oh, Greek, Latin. She wanted to be like talking. She yeah. just wanted to know it all. She also uh, had a job as a manicurist at a barber shop near the Capitol that was frequented by politicians, bankers, and journalists. So she got to eavesdrop on all sorts of cool conversations about the inner workings cool. of Congress, uh, affairs, etc. Yeah, that would be really fun. <laughs> it would be. She probably heard so much hot goss. I feel like if I had enough money and time and energy... Uh, that I would love to go and try and get a job somewhere where I can just eavesdrop. <sighs> That'd be so cool. Lame job, like sweeping, but sweeping at a nuclear facility <gasps> on the edge of North Korea or yeah, something. Because nobody be expects the manicurist or the janitor to, you know, they don't, they're just invisible to them. So you'd hear yeah. so much cool shit. Um, she dabbled in poetry a little bit in her early college years. Um, they were often written in exaggerated dialect, or some of them seemed to mimic like a classical style. She had one called Thou Art Mine. So I think she was really trying to find her her voice as a writer at this time. Uh, in 1920, she met herbert sheen who was 23 and she was like 29 now um yeah but she was a 20 29 she She was like a young 29 she was like going as 19 or something at this time that's what he (laughs) thought she was uh and she they were both preachers children but neither was very religious so they like to talk about you know all sorts of academic things uh he was also super charming he played piano sang and danced and they got along smashingly um and they would go on to date like it's it's not like off and on but like they were always in different places kind of so they had a Mm. chronically long distance relationship throughout their the duration of it um she also joined the staff of the Stylus Campus Literary Journal, which allowed her to became, become a regular at a popular literary salon hosted by the poet and playwright Georgia Douglas Johnson, who was super influential at the time. Um, and then in 1921, she published a poem in the Stylus and her first short story, John Redding Goes to Sea. And then the following year, she ended her brief poetry career with three poems in a national newspaper, which I'm going to say the word and people don't get offended. But this is like what they use throughout the movement. It's called Negro World. Mm-hmm. So all our sensitive listeners. I think, you, I think you built that up a little bit more. I than did. To. Because <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I think were, other people thought you might have called it something different. No, there was a book called that that I'm not definitely not going to say. But yeah. but I don't know. I'm in media. So people get canceled for saying yeah, you get it. You normal get it. shit all the time. Um, the fall of 1923 was the beginning of her last year of school, but she was only doing well in classes that interested her. Um, She's very like hot and cold with what she's willing to put effort into. And she was flunking everything else. And she also ran out of money. So she didn't enroll in the winter of 1924. So she basically dropped out with half a year to go. Um, In the 1920s, there was also this super important, um, like, cultural revival going on known as the Harlem Renaissance. Lewis and Lovecraft. Lewis is... uh, Damn it, I messed up that (laughs) joke. So bad. I was going to say Lovecraft's wedding. Oh, my God. Was it in the 1920s? It was 1924. He got married to Uh, Sonia. Wait, why do you remember the year? And moved to New York. And went, there's too many black people here. And then he divorced her and went home. Oh, my gosh. This is like such a great overlap. Yes. The Harlem Renaissance was this rebirth of African-American music, art and politics centered in New York City during the 20s and also the early 30s. Um, It 
at the time was known as the, quote, New Negro Movement, named after an anthology edited by Alan Locke. Um, This was so interesting to me. I really didn't know that much about the Harlem Renaissance, but it was crazy to learn how in demand and in vogue black writers and artists were during this period. Um, The Saturday Evening Post declared Harlem the, quote, Mecca for those who seek opportunity with a capital O. And this was a nod to the influential publication called Opportunity. Uh, organizations and wealthy patrons were basically throwing money at creators in this space. Um, Black History Week was also introduced one February, uh, which lives on a hundred years later as Black History Month. Nice. Zora was still in D.C., though, at Howard University when this all started, but one of her professors there was the aforementioned Alan Locke. Now, Locke was notorious for taking an interest in the careers of attractive young male writers male oh, writers male. and for having yeah. a very open bias against female students he even warned them on their first day of class that no matter how good they were he probably wouldn't give them more than a c <gasps> he's being a c <laughs> he is being a c but apparently <laughs> he uh saw promise in zora's work at the stylus so she was one of the few female uh writers that he liked and he recommended her work to the editor of opportunity he was turned on by her muscles yeah she she was super fit and he was like oh you ever thought about cutting your hair (laughs) 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 that's gross She uh, submitted a story called Drenched in Light, and it was published December 1924. Uh, This was her first nationally published short story, and it it was very well received by by reviewers and writers in the Harlem Renaissance. Then the first week of January 1925, she moved to New York City with a dollar and 50 cents in her purse. Quote, no job, no friends and a lot of hope. She immediately felt at home in Harlem, where, uh, as one writer characterized, it, it was just fun to be black. Like, it was it was like a party all the time, it sounds like. She attended all of these rent parties, which were, like, when the rent was due, people would throw parties and people would bring, like, some change or whatever to contribute to the host to help them pay their rent for the next month. Um, so she would go there, dance all night long, um... And, and just had, like, a great time and met all sorts of people. Can we do that? Can we have rent parties? I know, right? Like, virtual rent parties real quick? Like, so- <laughs> everyone, first of the month, just just go ahead and go to our virtual website and put in this money and then have a party. It'll the thing great. is, now we'd have to, with rents the way it is, we'd have to charge, like, $100 per attendee or something instead yeah, of 10 seriously. cents. There would be a convenience fee, obviously. Obviously. Um, the biggest like Harlem Renaissance event of the year was an Opportunity Awards dinner. And Zora, being super new on the scene, claimed several second place and honorable mention awards for short stories and plays that she wrote. She also made three very important friends through this ceremony. Uh, Annie Nathan Meyer, who was the founder of Barnard College. She met the famous author Fanny Hurst, and she also made friends with novelist and like all around social butterfly Carl Van Vechten. Uh, They found her endlessly charming and amusing, and Hurst described Zora as having, quote, the gift of walking into hearts. (laughs) It seems interesting that everybody from her hometown hated her, basically, Um, especially her dad, obviously. But like and they and they all didn't like her. They said it was hard to live with her because she had this travel dust thing going on. And she was like uh, this this creative. And then she finally gets to a place where she's surrounded by creative people and suddenly people love her. Yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting like transformation there. I would say people at home didn't hate her. They just hated living with her. I think she got yeah, along fine right. as long as she wasn't your house guest. <laughs> I wonder what it was about about her being your house guest that like people were like, ah, I don't know. I don't like Zora being here. I feel Look, like I, know I people- love Zora. <laughs> I think she's great. You know, I would kick it with Zora any night of the week. But the second we have to have her stay over. I think we all know people like that, though, who it's like, oh, they're a great person. I just don't want to live with them. Yeah, but yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> so yeah. 
so Meyer immediately offered her a spot at Bernard where she would become the only black student in her classes. Um, and then Fanny Hurst became one of Zora's main sources of financial aid in attending college because, of course, she'd arrived with $1.50 in her purse. Um, so she she started at Bernard where she found her way into the anthropology department and started doing field work under the prestigious Franz Boas. Uh, and he inspired a new passion and career track for her, which would contribute in a huge way to her writing. Um, so, this so is, yeah, this she is, was... This is a, a, a white guy with a big white mustache, by the way. All of these people are white. <laughs> yeah, but I just wanted to point out, he's, he's like, he's basically Mark Twain. You, you had to say that Franz was a, a white dude with a big white mustache. <laughs> we live in a world where there was a very influential black man named Chadwick. Oh, that's, that's true. So I, <laughs> yes, you did have to point that out. Twenties and thirties. We need to make sure people know that Franz was was basically Mark Twain. <laughs> so yeah, so Zora's kind of bouncing between these two worlds. You know, the creative world of the Harlem Renaissance and the academic world of Bernard College. Um, and then she she gets in really good with this group of other young writers. And at one point, um, this guy named Wallace Thurman along with Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and several other prominent writers from the Harlem Renaissance, they get the idea to start a, a new magazine of their own, and they're going to call it FIRE, with an exclamation point. So you have to say yeah. it. FIRE! 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 One of uh, Wallace Thurman's hey, goals you, for uh, FIRE... Hey, real quick, what are, you, what are you reading right there? Oh, me? Oh, me? I'm just reading... FIRE! <laughs> that is absolutely how you have to say it yeah. when people ask. <laughs> I hope nobody else in the building heard that. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to call the, the fire department. Yeah. <laughs> One of Thurman's goals for fire was to get it banned in Boston. I don't know why Boston, but he thought the controversy would boost sales. So they specifically tried to brainstorm really shocking content. Uh, Thurman wrote about a teen prostitute. Another writer wrote about a gay man. Uh, but it also had a diverse array of stories celebrating jazz, blues, and folk culture. It was published in November of 1926. And this is kind of an example of where, you know, black writers and were divided into two groups because black reviewers hated it. Uh, one critic called it, quote, effeminate Tommy Rot, which that sounds pretty, pretty Tommy nice Rot. to me. I need to know what Tommy Rot means. <laughs> you keep talking. I'm going to look up. You're going to look Rot. it up. White critics, on the other hand, barely noticed fire, but those who did loved it. So this was like, you know, the white people who considered themselves very cultured. They were like, oh, this is great. This scandalous uh, content about teen prostitutes and, you know, homosexuality at a time where that's very much not accepted. We're like all over that. Uh, but the magazine did not sell well and it had cost the equivalent of $10,000 to make. And then all of the leftover editions fittingly burned up in a basement fire and Thurston ended up in debt to the printer for about four years. <laughs> Have you found what Tommy Rot means yet? Yeah, I mean, it means foolishness, utter foolishness or nonsense. So he basically um, called it gay nonsense. Gay nonsense, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm looking, apparently... English dialect Tommy means fool. I didn't realize that. So, I didn't know that either. Um, Apologies to everyone named Tommy. Yeah. Tommy cock. That's not the word. That's not what <laughs> Tommy <I'm thinking> rot. <laughs> <laughs> Poppycock no. is what I was thinking in my head. Poppycock. <laughs> Tommy cock was the name of one of the stories in it. <laughs> I'm um, sure her dad gave people plenty of Tommy cock. Gross. <laughs> so aside from short stories, uh, she was publishing a lot of folklore in 1926. Uh, she published a three-part series called the e the Eatonville Anthology, uh, which contained 14 tales from the rural South. Some were known to many black Southerners and others were just from Zora's own memories. It was basically the literary equivalent to the stories that she entertained friends with at parties because um, she was a very well-known storyteller when she was out and about. 
but she was also falling more in love with anthropology and less with her literature studies, so she would end up spending most of the remainder of the Harlem Renaissance on the road because in 1927 she got a fellowship to collect black folklore in the South. So basically go around to all the different cities, talk to locals, and capture their stories and record them for history sounds Um, pretty fucking awesome yeah it's all thanks to franz boaz who had started looking for field work for her Um, could you imagine if somebody was like hey hannah we're gonna start paying you to just drive down the pacific northwest and and hit all the cities and just start interviewing people we want to really get in depth into people's lives in the northwest that would be amazing Right? Uh, you know, rich people hit me up. Yeah. Well, I and she needs an assistant. Um. <laughs> well, you know, Zora had an assistant for some of it um, because Langston Hughes joined her on her Southern travels for a while, which sound pretty, pretty fun. Uh, they were super good friends. So not ever romantically involved. Uh, yeah. But, you know, just two pals on a little road trip. I know nothing about Langston Hughes. Please. He's he... also a very famous writer, and I think he was more successful than her first. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but she kind of, like, took on way too much. She was also supposed to be writing a play with Langston, uh, writing a novel version of one of Annie Nathan Meyer's plays, and working on a story for the next issue of Fire, which uh, ended up never happening. But she was falling behind on all of that and disappointing her advisor at the same time because she wasn't really doing enough and he thought she was overconfident, which I think absolutely checks out with Zora. She's very confident. Yeah. Um, she also ended up taking a break from her fieldwork in May 1927 to meet up with Herbert Sheen, remember her long-distance boyfriend? Yeah. And they got married. So oh, look at that. Then he joined her in her travels for a while, but he wasn't <clears throat> super into it, so he pretty soon went back to his medical work in Chicago, and they were long-distance husband and wife. What? That's nuts. Uh, One of what I thought was the most notable things from her first anthropological trip was that she did her first interview with um, Kujo or Kujo Lewis, who was believed to be the sole survivor of the. I hope it's not Kujo. It might be Kujo. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. So many Kujo jokes we're going to make if it is. (laughs) He was the sole survivor of the last African slave ship to land in the U.S. He was like about 90 years old at the time. And he had been uh, kidnapped and sold into slavery by the Dahomey kingdom. Um, That's the kingdom that the woman king is based on. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. That's a fun little fact. Yeah, little little tie to pop culture. Um, (laughs) One of the other crazy things was that if Zora Neale Hurston was writing today, her career probably would have ended at this next uh, little point because while she was out doing anthropology studies, another professor was making her transcribe all these historical records for him and write some other material. And she was like annoyed that he was encroaching on her story gathering. So she sent him um, a report that she had written about Kudrow. Kudjo Lewis that was heavily ripped straight from this other historian's um, writing. Like she used original quotes from Lewis, but then entire sections were straight up plagiarized without oh, attribution. Um, not really sure why she did this. Uh, the author of my biography speculated that maybe she never meant for it to be published. And she thought she, she was just trying to like placate the, the professor well, yeah and it sounds like she had a lot on her plate she yeah. probably was looking for some shortcuts and was like ah, i, don't, I just like, need to get this to him yeah so. here's some shit but then the professor actually published it um luckily nobody in her lifetime noticed the plagiarism this was all discovered after she died oh, wow yeah that's lucky yep so After six months of traveling the South, she had collected enough stories and accounts of culture and also conjure practices, so like magic, to satisfy her advisor. Uh, She really thought he was going to be disappointed in her after all of this because she realized that she hadn't really... She was very novice at this. Um, But apparently he only let her think that he was disappointed in her because he knew she was green and that only like super crushing disappointment would make her grow as an anthropologist. That's some bullshit that I fully understand. (laughs) And like, I hate it, but it is true. There like even now as as an electrician, 
I do stuff with my apprentice where like he I have an apprentice who helps me out every once in a while and he's a really good apprentice and and <clears throat> the thing is is he has to work on some confidence a little bit you know which I know more probably better than most people um and there's times though where I have to be like okay I've really built him up and I and I've like publicly praised him and I've really made sure he knows that I think he's great. Um, and then I will, he'll do something that's not bad necessarily, but like slightly not good, you know? And so then I'm just like, okay, well, this is, I, I kind of make a bigger deal out of it than I need to, just so that I can help him understand that he could have done better. And there's a point in it where you kind of learn to get a little bit tougher skin, you know, and, and that's, that's how it worked with me is when you go through those disappointments and you come out the other side and you realize, Oh, I'm, I'm still alive and I'm, I can still do this. Then you gain that confidence because you're like, yeah, well I used to be really shitty, but now I'm not, you know, it's, it's kind of, how I see that. No, I think the sink or swim like mentality is crucial to most people's development. Like sure. At yeah. a certain point, yeah, it, it needs to be implemented with but as an instructor, as a mentor, knowing that you can help them, you can catch them, and you don't need to make such a big deal out of small things, like or or making sure you get in front of things becoming a big deal sort, mm -hmm. of, sort of thing. right um so when she went back to new york city um she was introduced probably by alan Locke or langston hughes to uh, a woman named charlotte mason this was a a very wealthy widow who was one of the main patrons of um you know young black writers at the time in the late 1920s through the early 30s, she gave the equivalent of $750,000 to black writers and artists. So she was just like shelling out the dough left and nice. right. Um, Hit in, me up, in Charlotte Mason. I know, right? In December of 1927, Mason wrote an employment contract that would allow Zora to spend all of the next year collecting more folklore in the South. Uh, she bought her a car and a camera to help in her work. And if things went well, she, they agreed that the contract could be extended another year. But Mason was also like a very controlling person. So the contract gave her the right to all of Zora's research and uh, required that Zora not publish anything without her approval, which wow. would lead to a lot of like tensions throughout their relationship. Yeah. Uh, so Zora set off again. She re-interviewed uh, Kajo Lewis. Uh, over the course of about a month, she sat on his porch with him, snacking on peaches as he told his life story. Uh, and he gave her enough material to eventually write a book-length study of him in 1931. Um, as she traveled through the South, she found that people were hesitant to talk to her at first because she had this nice car that Charlotte Mason bought her. And she also wore nicer clothes than most of the people in the South. So at first she told them that she was a bootlegger on the run from the law. And they were like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then they let her into their parties. Um, and eventually once they got to know her, she told them the truth. At parties, she convinced people to hold lying contests and award prizes for the most outlandish tales. She got so many great stories from this and people even approached her privately to tell her more folk stories that they didn't get the chance to share during the contests. Uh, one of the crazy stories from this period is that Zora actually had to like run out of one town. Uh, she had made friends with a lot of the men who were some of her best sources of folklore. She'd like take them out, buy them drinks, get them to share all of their stories. Uh, but one man's girlfriend didn't like this too much and attacked yeah. Zora outside of a party with a knife. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Luckily. Did she beat the shit out of her like <laughs> Millie or Minnie or whatever yeah. her name is? Zora was about to get some retribution for beating up Maddie, um, but luckily she had also made friends with this woman called Big Sweet, who was, as her name implies, a little on the larger side, and Big Sweet ran at the knife wielder with a blade of her own. Oh my gosh. And, like, tackled the lady, and then everybody was yelling at Zora, like, hey, get out of here, get out of here. So she ran straight to where she was staying, loaded up the car, and bolted for New Orleans without a Holy look back. Crap. That's terrifying. Yeah. Like she almost well, got I mean, knifed. <laughs> to be honest, she kind of put it on herself. Like this is 
You don't get to kill somebody for hanging out with your husband or boyfriend or whatever. Yes, you're absolutely right. She didn't deserve to be attacked with a knife, obviously. But she's going around town hanging out with dudes, getting them drunk. What are people supposed to suspect of of her? Like, I'm not in any way saying she should be or deserves to be hurt or killed for this. But maybe, like... Maybe bring the girlfriends along so that they know what's yeah, going on. There's an idea. Maybe talk to the girlfriends and be like, hey, I'm doing a study about these people and I want information from you and your boyfriend. I would love to, you know, get that. So she maybe could have played it a little better. I feel like she should have seen that coming. And maybe, maybe she did. Maybe this is a situation where she did and the girlfriend was like, no, I don't want, I don't want that. And then, and then she's at the bar with another guy getting some information. And then, and then that guy shows up and is like, I got some information for you. And then, and then the girlfriend's like, how dare you? We talked to you. I said no. And then she stabs her. I, I think know. that's exactly how it went down. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my one act play of Zora Neale Hurst getting getting thrown out of town. And there it was. Well, after she got thrown out of town, she she went to New Orleans where she devoted six months to an in-depth study of hoodoo and conjure, which are basically beliefs uh, and practices to call upon spiritual forces. Uh, Zora is said to have gone through multiple hoodoo teachers initiation rituals. So she like... She knew immersed what she was doing. herself. Yeah. yeah. She, she immersed herself in this study. One of the rituals which horrified me uh, involved catching a black cat, throwing it into a boiling cauldron <gasps> until the bones fell apart, and then sucking on the bones until one tasted bitter. Was it was it the first one? It should be the first one. That's I, disgusting. Yeah, I, I don't know how, how cat bones taste but that's just oh i'm such a cat lady so this makes me very upset um she you know you're not supposed to write a lot about the details of hoodoo and and these practices so her writing about it was very vague she said she experienced an unearthly terror heard indescribable noises uh sights and feelings uh and yeah so this was a very big experience for her and then she was so good at this that one hoodoo doctor apparently asked her to stay in New Orleans to become his partner. Uh, oh, wow. And she she kind of like wanted to, but she was like, mm, I'm doing this anthropology work. So had to move on. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Charlotte Mason was very impressed with this. So Zora got to continue her work the next year. Um, so some of the other things that she recorded were a, a Baptist church service that she wrote she like scripted it word for word and musical note for musical note, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, she also just like took off for the Bahamas at one point where she filmed because Charlotte had given her like a very primitive like video recorder. Yeah. Um, yeah. She filmed the native folk dances, um, collected 20 songs and also learned to do their traditional jump dance. Nice. So, yeah, she she really she stepped it up a lot on this second anthropology trip. Yeah, she kind of got her feet underneath her and realized what she was capable of doing in the anthropology world. Exactly. Um, And I think we have gone for about an hour now, so we should probably yeah. uh, save there's, the rest well, for next there's time. There's so much more to talk about with this, with her life and her legacy um, that I think it's definitely a two-parter as far as, as where we're standing. Yeah, and girl uh, does not stop. Like, honestly, she lived in the 1920s, and I feel like she accomplished so much more than me. Like, she was able to do so much more travel <laughs> at a time where travel was not as easy or affordable yeah. as it is now. Yeah, and also zombies. Um, and also zombies, which she, we will talk about next time. With zombies, <laughs> and I want to talk about that. So next episode, we're opening up on the legend of Zora and the zombies of hoodoo. We are, no, next time we're opening up on the legend of Zora and how her great friendship with Langston Hughes came to a very salty end. <sighs> Fine, let's talk about friendship drama. When there's zombies on the table. And then zombies. <laughs> and then we can talk about zombies. So, um, thanks for hanging out with us, ghoul gang. 
Um, if you want to uh, to do something for us as instead, you know, like patrons and stuff like that, we have a Patreon. But there's other ways that you can help us, like like sharing us with your friends. Oh, I was gonna say sending me cocaine because I thought. Oh that right, you, yeah, because it's, nobody did that ever. Nobody's <laughs> ever sent her cocaine, and we still need that to happen. And we're gonna film it um, with a primitive camera and just watch her do some uh, hoodoo dances. <laughs> oh my um, god, <laughs> I'm cursed already. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so so share us with your friends. Um, we'll hopefully have this video up and stuff so you can you can share the video on our on our from our YouTube. And you can say, um, "Damn, that girl wore makeup for once." Damn, girl, you got makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you have do you have anything else, Hannah, that you want to talk about before we get out of here? No, this has been fun. Yeah. Uh, very interesting person. I can't wait to continue the conversation. Uh, so remember to stay safe, ghoul gang, and don't <laughs> don't throw a cat in boiling water. Please, please, God, don't. Yeah, go donate to PETA or something. <laughs> <laughs>